it is the this primal desire as individuals that we should be meted out an equal proportion as our siblings, mm-hmm. right? So, so, and what I'm thinking of, like, let's go to something really primitive, like like a bird, you know, feeding the infants in the nest, right, mm-hmm. or feeding the hatchlings in the nest. So, I mean, th- there is a deep sense of injustice at the level of the reptilian brain if someone else was given something and you weren't. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just a classic amygdala hijack is that, hey, there was this distribution process. This is, again, uh, how this idea of, of the system being rigged or fixed comes in, which is another falsehood that we've attacked in the past, is that, um, you know, there was a distribution and you weren't in on it. And then, yeah, people are going to be mad. And well, I think what Seoul is showing is that people's political energies, uh, their animus is harnessed through their economic ignorance. Because this 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 argument gets passed around like, well, redistribution doesn't mean anything because there was no distribution in the first place. Mm-hmm. But if I can tick people off, if I can tick people off and suggest that somebody got a bigger distribution than you did, mm-hmm. then I can get them to vote for me and all of my interventionist policies, consequences be damned. Very, very I'm trying to like see through this problem, but there's just not really a good way other than. Bitcoin, right? Give people recourse to some form of wealth that can't be redistributed. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them. As again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility, and it's a really a, a brand new UI UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. 
Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Anish Carve, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Hey, thanks for having me. So we are continuing this very fascinating journey into Thomas Sowell's book, Discrimination and Disparities. And just as a segue to how we concluded the last episode, uh, talking about the usefulness of words, but also kind of the inherent risk, right? That they're, they're, they're static, they're fictions. The map is not the territory, you know, the map being words or language itself, the territory being this complex, fluid, dynamic reality we're all dealing with. Um, and I, I just thought it was, we didn't even know this as we concluded the last episode, but it's interesting that Soul opens the very next chapter, which is titled The World of Words, with this quote from Thomas Hobbes, who wrote, For words are wise men's counters, they do but reckon by them, but they are the money of fools. Um, I mean, so that's like talking about the imprecision of words to some extent. Like, obviously, we need to use them, but it's uh, there's something about the consensus between my understanding of a word and your understanding of a word that's perhaps a little bit slippery at times. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this opening quote? I mean, it's amazingly prescient. And so when I think of the money of fools, I think of fiat. And hmm. the gradual progression of fiat has been the transformation of what used to be a deposit of a physical amount of gold to a fractional amount of gold to nothing. Mm -hmm. And that is the sense in which words are the money of fools. Like the, you just have a promissory note right. in your pocket known as the US dollar. And so I think the last chapter we were looking at the world of numbers and what we concluded was that there are different forms of reality. There's, as you said, the menu, and then there's the meal, the reality itself. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin is a hard and undeniable currency. I think we mm -hmm. said 21 million. Mm -hmm. And to contrast that with what fiat is, which is a bunch of empty promises or air, Mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing that Hobbes was thinking about this more than 300 years ago, and that Sol picked up on that. And, and that's really what this whole chapter of the world of words is about. It's the differences between appearance and reality. Mm -hmm. And secondly, what Sol calls, we're going to get into this as we tease apart causal connections. So everybody's heard this difference between causation and correlation. We're going to look at that a little bit. But uh, some perhaps new Latin words for the audience, ex ante and ex post. So we're going to look at the difference between when we evaluate a word before the fact of anything having happened, which is ex ante, or after the fact, which is ex post. Mm -hmm. And in emotions versus causation, you know, this is really probably the single, one of the single biggest themes in all of Soul's work. So vision of the anointed, discrimination and disparities, the list goes on. 
emotions versus causation. Because Sol, just like Mises, his job was to get the average person, the everyday American, to stop and to think about what they hear to see if there's any truth to it. And, and that's where he starts the emotions versus causation section of this chapter. He says, decent people can be appalled by the many oppressions and persecutions that have abounded throughout history. But to weigh the current causal effects of such oppressions and persecutions of the past, or even of the present, is very different from simply reciting a litany of wickedness, as if that automatically establishes causation for other events. Hmm. And I think he's laying bare, again, the politician's syllogism, which is something like, we must do something, this is something, therefore we must do this. <laughs> and so right. what he's pointing out is that if you use the right buzzwords in any political discourse today, you can get critical thinking to stop completely. And in fact, if you think about it, that's exactly what cancel culture is. We just have to use these certain words, and then we are then beyond reproach and beyond criticism, and we will denounce anybody who disagrees with us as an ist. You know, we could call mm -hmm. them a racist. We could call them a, uh, any number, a capitalist <laughs> that, that we could apply. And so I think what he's showing is that there are certain tragedies and emotional scars in humanity that when you mention them, people's critical thinking stops. And it isn't just that people's critical thinking stops, is that this is used as a political loophole to seize power. So I'll, I'll just pause there and then we, we can go into some of the, the specifics he's got. Yeah, it's um, it looks like language games to me. Like we need, you know, language is very critical, obviously, for making us what we are, like being human, being able to solve our problems via distributed cognition versus trying to solve them just independently, right? It's what allows us to engage in economics and the market process and all these things. But the language is inherently imprecise to the reality. So it seems like this kind of political rhetoric um, is a battle to control the presuppositions, right? If you get people, like we talked offline a little bit about trickle-down economics, which he gets into later, it's like, if you can get people to accept that paradigm, then they no longer question what it's based on. And so you get, you, you trap their thinking almost in this um, fantasy world, right? Where trickle down economics maps onto some actual reality when in fact it, it just does not. So um, there's a quote, I read this a long time ago that the, every war is in the human imagination, you know, that we're, we're trying to battle for this belief space, I guess, in one another's minds. And we're doing that with language. Um, and so it's, it's pretty telling how much these things can short circuit, how we think and how we relate to the word. I, this is almost like a restatement of what we said in the last episode, that if you have bad terms, you just have bad thinking, right? So if you have a bad, syntax or terminological structure, then you're just not going to be able to think properly. Like it's not going to map onto the world in any real sense because your mm -hmm. presuppositions or your axioms are wrong, right? So you're not, there's going to be misfitness to the real world. Yeah, we, we've talked to, we've repeated this Hayek's mantra that language, law, and money are the pillars of society. Mm. We talked in particular about money being the denominator of economic calculation in Mises' world. And it should be very clear that when any one of those dimensions is distorted, the projections and what we're able to build upon that as a society are increasingly weakened. Mm. 
And so the idea here is that as we introduce objectivity into the market process and in the political process, there's a when, what does that mean? Well, we've just seen in the previous chapter that if we're not careful, we won't interpret numbers objectively. And in this chapter, where we're looking at the this consensus this consistent attempt by status to shut down the thinking faculty by providing a, a distorted picture of reality. And, and I want to I want to kind of start with with Hayek's view of what Soul is treating in this chapter. It's a very it's a very simple quote. He says the idea of social justice is that the state should treat different people unequally in order to make them equal. And so this, very much like Marxism itself, is an inherent contradiction. And mm. starting with a contradiction, we attempt to build upon it. And mm. as you know, garbage in, garbage out. If we start right. with a contradiction, what kinds of social constructs are we going to get on top of those? Nothing good. And this is now, as only soul can do, he he mentions the considerable evils of, of the past, which includes, there's a phrase that economists use called the legacy of slavery. But then he brings statistics to bear and says, he asks a pointed question, or he points out the poverty rate of married blacks is not only lower than that of blacks as a whole, but in some years also has been lower than that of whites as a whole. In 2016, for example, the poverty rate for blacks was 22%, for whites was 11%, for black married couples was 7.5%. And then he asks the question, do racists care whether someone black, whether someone black is married or unmarried? Hmm. And so uh, again, here is that there, there is a very painful narrative, which we should all, a reality that we all need to contend with, especially as Americans, but that may or may not have anything to do with the current state of affairs. And it is used as a red herring to then drive all kinds of political policies through to fruition, which don't even affect the, the underlying dynamics or the mm -hmm. underlying causal mechanisms, because these aren't causative. Mm -hmm. They're purely emotional scars that are, are paraded so that uh, under the camouflage of this emotional scar, they can get legislation that we've talked about the Patriot Act as an example mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, I love just to reiterate that Well, you said it was Hayek on the social justice quote treating different people Correct. unequally to make them equal. Right. I mean, it's, it's just great. It's another one of these oxymoronic sort of foundations. Um, and you're, again, you're kind of preying on people's intuition for justice here where I think we all, most of us at least have this natural inclination to want to see people getting what they deserve. Right. You, you kind of root for the good guy to win in the movie and the bad right. guy to get his just desserts and, and whatnot. But when you take the reality of unequal outcomes, which is like this, this Darwinian reality, everything in nature is unequal outcomes as we've discussed at length. And then you try to assign blame somehow, right? Like, Oh, this is a problem that there are unequal outcomes. You're, you're, Again, getting people to buy into that imaginary game of, oh, all of these inequalities in the world are due to some fundamental um, nefariousness of some kind. And, it, and right. that is that's the pain point that political rhetoric seems to push on, you know, vote for me, I'll fix this, I'll fix this inequality. And um, I don't know, it just it's it's obviously critically dependent on ignorance of the reality of unequal outcomes, which is literally everything that we observe in nature is unequal outcomes. And not only nature, society and history. And yeah. what Sol points out in this book is that how is it that by chanting discrimination, people are able to question the order of society, but their premises are never questioned. 
In other words, the assumption that anything should be equal or random is never questioned. And I want to dilate a little bit uh, again with Hayek. And he says the classical demand is that the state ought to treat all people equally in spite of the fact that they are very unequal. So pause there for a second. We made this very simple observation. A man, a woman, a person is not equal to themselves. Imagine Mm -hmm. the difference between you having had breakfast versus not, having slept versus not. And this idea, people aren't even equal to themselves economically decade over decade, as we've seen in prior podcasts. There's tremendous mobility across the economic strata. So Hayek goes on. You can't deduce from this that because people are unequal, you ought to treat them unequally in order to make them equal. And that's what social justice amounts to. It's a demand that the state should treat people differently in order to place them in the same position. He finishes, to make people equal a goal of government policy would force government to treat people very unequally indeed. Mm. Yeah, it's what we really want, you know, this idea of treating people equally, it's pretty intuitive if you look at sports, right? You just want the proverbial level playing field or a consistent rule set. You wouldn't say, oh, because Michael Jordan scored so many more baskets, let's bend the rules to where, Michael Jordan's baskets count for one point. Every other player's counts for two. You know, you're not, you're not going to handicap the best player. Yet that's exactly what we're proposing with socialism or social justice in general. And this is the fallacy of distribution, right? So, so the idea that we can redistribute incomes falsely implies that incomes, we'll get more into this later as we come to the close of the chapter, mm-hmm. falsely implies that incomes were distributed in the first place. They were not. They were earned. Mm-hmm. The incomes were earned, and not only were they earned, there there were these distributed, hidden prerequisites for success that the market process, that caused the market process to select certain individuals over other individuals. So again, it's think of that framing. We like that. Wow, we really should redistribute wealth. Wait a minute, it was never distributed in the first place. And these are the kinds of thoughts, thought processes that we need to have if we're going to be economically astute. And uh, I, I want to kind of keep moving along. In this chapter and and talk a little bit about the fact that on, on either side of the issues there are different outcomes in different groups of americans and no one has denied that fact as there have been different outcomes in different groups in other countries around the world and over thousands of years of recorded history now this is the crux what is at issue here as in many other times and places are the causes of those differences merely reciting these differences and arbitrarily attributing them to whatever the prevailing social vision of the time declares to be the cause mm whether genes or discrimination, is hardly hypothesis testing. Slippery words are among the many ways of evading an empirical confrontation of opposing explanations. And this is exactly what we see in Marx, by the way. Again, as we've mentioned several times during this series, is that Marx was only able to get away with the sleight of hand that society, quote-unquote society, could solve all of man's ills by attributing everything bad that, quote, society does to the state and then everything good that it does to society. So this verbal sleight of hand, these poorly defined terms are inherent in these Rube Goldbergs and political contraptions we get caught in that mm-hmm. don't work. And to bring it back to something that we care a lot about, that's why Satoshi said, I'm done with the chancellors, I'm done with bailouts for the <laughs> banks, and this is how smart contracts work, and this is how many Bitcoin we're going to have for all time, and this is how big the block size is going to be, and that's the end of this debate. Mm-hmm. And so now, and this is, you know, it's very unfortunate that Ethereum has co-opted the term code is law because in the Ethereum community, code is law doesn't actually mean anything because you can hard fork. (laughs) 
and, and change things. But I guess I think that is the question. And this is the advanced piece of technology with which neither Friedman nor Hayek, although they alluded to its existence, had access to, or Hobbes even. What is Hobbes saying? Word Words are the money of fools. I mean, that's right. the best description of fiat banking I've ever heard. So right. in any case, I think what we are distinguishing here are mental constructs, which don't have the formalism of code. And then these new denominators of economic calculation that uh, have the formalism of code and a machine can interpret them. And it doesn't require uh, the arbitrary judgments of an individual in between. Yeah, that's a great example, right? Where Marx is crediting society with all of the good things that support his perspective on the collective and yet demonizing the state, which is just another collective, right? It's, it's extremely arbitrary, uh, not formally or rigorously defined. And so you get in, you can't argue with someone that's created terms like that because it's heads. I win tells you lose, right? No matter what you have to say, that's right. you're playing, you're battling in his arena, right? Where he's now defined, what is he doing? He's not defining it. He's just representing it as if they are two isolated concepts, but he's actually commingling them such that he can support his agenda with any comment, right? If it's a negative, if it's perceived to be negative, it'll say it's because of the state. If it's perceived to be a positive, it's from society. But the reality, right? Like the highest resolution uh, description of what actually happens is individuals acting and interacting with one another. There is no there is no composite called society, right? It's it's an arbitrary circumscription of a group of acting and interacting and interacting individuals, the same as the state is. And so when you get in, you get trapped in that. And you that's what I mean, I guess that's the problem with Marxist thinking in general, is that it does not have a respect for that. It's there's a high degree of informalism, let's say. So the terms are slippery as as Soul describes. Yeah, not only informalism, but blatant self-contradiction. And yet it's written in such a way that the emotional narrative, the emotional arc is so compelling that people right. don't feel the need to even do any hypothesis testing. Marx himself didn't do any hypothesis testing. Right. And sometimes we call this, there are other flaws in your, we call this affirming the consequence sometimes where you start with what you want to prove and then you, mm -hmm. know, you proceed to try and prove it. So a kind of circularity. And the interesting thing, as Mises points out, is that this also... This also applies in the other direction. They call everything that they don't like capitalism and proceed to, to reason that capitalism is bad. Right. And so uh, I want to now take us into, into some of the, the meat of this chapter. So what are you talking about, Robert? You're talking about this imprecision of terms, right? Changing words and meanings. And we're going to go through, uh, there's, I think, three to five words, which we hear every day in the news. Uh, you probably hear every day on the floor of Congress and whose meaning has been so badly debased from the actual dictionary meaning or denotation that the words hardly mean anything. One of them is violence. And now if you, if you know, like now speech is violence. And even if you're not, so I could kind of see a gray area if your speech was threatening to harm, physically harm someone, mm -hmm. but now simply bringing up or talking about certain topics is called violence. And so I want to, I want to get into some of these buzzwords, which, which we're going to tease apart. And, you know, this is frankly the hard thing about this is the challenge in, in this book. The central challenge in this book is that 
there are certain trigger words. Society has trigger words. And mm -hmm. if you're able to trigger people, you can either shut down a discourse and you can sh or you can shut down people's ability to think clearly. And that's why this book is so hard. It's such a difficult pill to swallow, but it's uh, delicious once you digest what soul is saying is because we have to have the intelligence and the consciousness and the wherewithal to look at what these words actually mean. And, and let's take some of those apart. So first of all, setting the landscape from soul. Among the words given new and often misleading meanings are such common and simple words as change, opportunity, violence, and privilege. Conversely, old meanings have been expressed by new words as vagrants became, quote, the homeless, exultant young thugs became, quote, troubled youths, and balkanization became diversity. Mm -hmm. And so that last one, so the term balkanization, which comes from the Balkans, where we literally saw multiple disintegrations of society as people, you know, the fabric of society crumbled because the individuals were so different from one another, mm. then somehow got cast into a strength. And uh, I'll, I'll start with Jerusi and then turn over to you. So this is what Sol has to say. The fragmented society of people polarized into separate group identities used to be called a Balkanized society. And the painful history of strife, bloodshed, and atrocities in the Balkans stood as an example of how destructive that can be to all. But that was before the word balkanization was replaced by the much nicer sounding word diversity, from which all sorts of wonderful benefits have been assumed and incessantly proclaimed bold without any empirical test of those claims. Yeah, I've got a highlight just past that that I'll read. He wrote that the word diversity is used to imply positive interactions with benefits for the various participants and for society at large. But we cannot simply define our way into beneficial outcomes. Whether the promotion of separate identities by race, sex, or other characteristics is beneficial or harmful in its consequences is an empirical question, and a question almost never confronted by apostles of quote-unquote diversity. Um, you know, what... One thing that jumped out at me here is like this, as you described, the emotionally charged language. Uh, it seems to be the uh, intent behind it, perhaps, is to engage in like an amygdala hijack, you know, where if you get someone's emotions engaged, like you said, it short circuits, critical thinking, it destroys the possibility of any authentic dialogue or, or rational debate. Um, and you, you're kind of what are you doing? You're, you're pressing a button that pushes people down under their lower animality. And then when they're in that state, um, I guess this, this favors the interest of a politician because what you're doing is creating more chaos, divisiveness, uh, internal conflict among people. And then the flip side of that is more demand for law and order, right? Law, order, regulation, et cetera. So, it, I mean, this seems like one of these kind of psychological tactics that people just cannot resist playing so long as it's effective on, on people. And I don't know if, if we can really fix this other than just talking about the nature of the game that's being played. And maybe that helps make people more aware of it, but it's definitely been something that's been played for a really long time. Yeah, I think the first step, and this is the beauty of reason, is that even if reason can't control our emotions, it can help us to be aware of them. And, mm -hmm. you know, even in the works of the Austrian economists, it's not even that reason is superior to emotion. But I, I would love to just kind of dilate a little bit on this idea of the amygdala hijack. I think that's really well said. 
And it, it, I think this is one of the things that I learned growing up is that you have to understand if you're threading or vibing. And I want to explain the, the difference between those mm. two things. So in a conversation, when you're threading, it's kind of a logical conversation and you are pursuing the thread according to rationality. Mm. When you're vibing, the conversation has an emotional direction. And uh, after some vigorous debates on Facebook, which went nowhere, someone pointed out to me that in, in a discussion, you have to realize, are you addressing trauma where an individual is traumatized, or mm -hmm. is this a rational, logical conversation? And I, I think this also goes deeply into the differences between men and women mm -hmm. in that the conversation may have an emotional grain vibing, or it may have a logical grain threading. And I think what's really interesting here is we're showing how the political apparatus and the state and the agents of the state can use these emotional scars to engage in an amygdala hijack. And as soon as we mention, which is something painful that we should all be concerned about, the quote unquote leg legacy of slavery, it does not follow that whatever policy was suggested after that is somehow going to address that grievance or address that problem. Right. So I love that. And you know, you know what's really deep about this is that I think this – Amygdala hijack is what all of the demagogues in history have engaged in, mm -hmm. is they created an emotional attractor, positive or negative, and then were able to drive a truck through that hole by silencing their critics and by uh, even by shaming their their adherence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great point, man. I've, I've been reading this book, Metaphors We Live By. And it's got me really thinking differently about language. But one of the things in that book says that we tend to, even the way we spatially organize a sentence, um, I wish I could give a good example here. Like we tend to think that things closer together in a sentence are more closely related. So like by sure. virtue of their spatial organization, like we think they're the conceptually, they're actually more closely related. So it seems like one of those types of tricks here, where if you bring up slavery, then like no matter what you say after that as like a policy response, people just kind of think that that's somehow related to the thing you said most recently. And so you yeah. can just use this very emotionally charged language about whatever atrocity or social ill you're seeking to, to remedy. And then you can propose almost any policy action. And just by virtue of proximity, people associate have a positive association with that, that proposition. Yeah, those are called fluency effects. And there's a there's a whole really interesting extensive literature on them. And I'll just give you one. And that's that uh, if you are if you as an individual are asked to judge a character in a story, if you're hitting sitting in a hard chair versus a soft chair, in a harder <laughs> chair, people will on average be more harsh and more critical of the person they're reading about. Or another example, if you just lighten the font that they're mm -hmm. reading in, because that the additional attention, first of all, they they retain the information better, which is amazing in and of yeah. itself, but also they tend to be more forgiving because the contrast between black and white. And so as individuals, we have all of these kind of perceptual effects uh, and working in our mind all at once. And this is one of the great achievements of the Austrian economists is that they showed that uh, in no way are the decisions that people make 100% dependent upon reason, or can they be derived mm -hmm. from pure reason? So this is both an asset and a weakness. And I wonder I wonder if there we can kind of turn into this concept of, of ex ante and ex post, because it shows an, another of the ways in which terms are, are distorted for this kind of emotional hijack. And the example that Sol gives, he says, if a car is in working order, that 
car is always mobile, okay? This is an ex ante judgment. Before mm-hmm. the fact, we can say that this car has this property of mobility. Mm-hmm. But ex post, only ex post can we say that the car is moving. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he starts to, to tease out now some really interesting ex ante versus ex post hacks that are, that are played on, on people's minds. And he gives an example. He says, just as some people have been said to have been denied opportunity or access because their outcomes have been less favorable, So some other people who have had more positive outcomes have been called privileged, even if individuals from such groups had no more numerous nor more favorable options available at the outset than others whose outcomes have not been as positive. Mm -hmm. So what does this mean? This is very much like out-of-sample bias, right? In other words, so let's take an example. Everyone has the same equal conditions applied to them in the beginning, and then it just so happens that some of the individuals succeed. You cannot then go after the fact of that success and said, well, these individuals were privileged. That's not accurate. Everyone had the same opening set of conditions or at least the same world conditions, the same market Mm -hmm. conditions to operate into. And then it just so happened that some people succeeded and other people didn't. And we know from this book, we know from discrimination disparities that who's on top in history is continuously changing as long as there's a market process that's there to allow the more efficient set of individuals to take over the more efficient processes to, to take uh, primacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can never know ex ante what actions are going to be successful in the marketplace, right? So you can't look at someone that has achieved financial success by whatever, or any form of success by whatever criteria you are evaluating them and say that they had somehow an advantage in the beginning. Cause that you, at the original point in time, you could have never called that an advantage because you don't know where you don't know that that is going to serve them in satisfying consumer wants or whatever the metric of success is until it's ex post, right? Until you're looking in retrospect. So the great irony of the market process as well is that the precisely the characteristics which put people ahead in one generation of the market may put them behind in the in the next generation. Mm-hmm. And this is why we come back to this. Mises, Mises says entrepreneurs cannot be trained. There's no algorithm for success. That's the whole point. It's a mm-hmm. process that we have to go through as individuals in the in the course of human action. Yes. And the market process helps us discover this distribution, but you can't know ahead of time what that is. And this is, again, one of the great mistakes. Remember last time, Sowell called this the fallacy of composition. Just because we observe that an individual with an education has a higher income doesn't mean that we can now educate the entire pro- the entire populace and that will raise everybody's income. Because what was an advantage before that intervention now becomes a non-differentiator. That's right. And I would also argue here that this is the great value of honoring individual sovereignty, right? Because we don't know where the who is going to generate the solutions we need tomorrow or next year. We we have no way of possibly knowing. We don't know what circumstances uh, will prevail at that time. So what we can do is level the playing field, right? This is what capitalism essentially is: life, liberty, and property. Everyone play by the same rules. That way, each individual has the widest possible opportunity to address the uncertainty or the problems that may arise. So it's like we're, we're giving ourselves by leveling the playing field and not trying to um, legislate, you know, equal outcomes of some kind. We're actually giving ourselves the widest possible uh, 
widest bandwidth of solving these problems, I guess, that we actually have the most people that could work on these problems in the future versus trying to determine, uh, what is this beforehand, right? What people need to be doing, what jobs to solve, what problems, like that's almost a self-defeating enterprise when you view it from, uh, the collective standpoint of, of wealth creation or, or problem solving. Yeah, I would, from an economic standpoint, I would call that optionality. And you know, what's ironic is that optionality is very similar to diversity. And so what we're trying to do, or let's say the capitalist or libertarian vision of society is that let's keep the rules as simple as possible so that optionality is as high as possible. Mm -hmm. And what does that do? That increases survivability into the future that provides for innovation. And the whole nature of innovation having a very long tail is that there are certain individuals the classic example, you may or may not like him, Elon Musk. There are single individuals who can invent things that will pay for the rest of the freeloaders in the system. Right. But that only happens if he has the optionality to maybe at the time when he was a young kid that it, no one thought that electric cars or rockets were very interesting. Mm-hmm. And and what, what statist or what government education program would have told him that he should think about these things? That's not how the market process works. And uh, – I think that just beautifully illustrates how what is called diversity in name is actually an attempt to destroy diversity in the populace by saying that, no, 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 we, the central planners need to know what the composite, we we can dictate what the composition of society should be, what people should study, what they should be interested in. This is preposterous. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's um, (laughs) another one of those inversions, I guess. Um, I'll I'll read this somewhat long excerpt here. Um. Where am I at here? Okay. So on page 121, he writes, Sol writes, nevertheless, before the first decade of Sri Lanka's independence was over, a Sinhalese politician promoted resentments against the more prosperous Tamil minority during his campaign to become prime minister. Ethnic polarization led first to discriminatory laws against the Tamils and then to a cycle of violence and counterviolence that ultimately escalated into a decades-long civil war in which there were unspeakable atrocities on both sides. At a minimum, history shows how dangerous it can be to a whole society to automatically and incessantly attribute statistical differences and outcomes to malevolent actions against the less successful. That the charge can often be false and misleading might also carry some weight and merit closer attention to the specific facts of particular cases. Not only the society in general, but lagging groups in particular can benefit from knowing what is true as distinguished from what is currently in vogue. Not only does truth offer a clearer path of path to advancement, the breakdown of law and order brought on by constantly stirred bitter resentments almost invariably leads to more suffering among the less fortunate. Uh, so this is like a lead in to the ex anti ex post um, and yeah, I just thought it was useful to read like the idea of kind of trying to impose a certain um, opinion about a minority, you know, in this case, he's talking about the, the Tamil minority. It actually, the, um, they're saying they're trying to help the minorities, but the reality is it's an intervention that ends up hurting them. So just another case of that inversion. Yeah. And here, what we see is, is part of this amygdala hijack, uh, empirical evidence will not be tolerated. 
Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting because Mises has his own view of empirical evidence, which we should probably tie into at some point. But Sol writes, if the issue were simply one of differences of opinion as to the causes of disparate achievements, this is the key tenet of this book, differences of opinion have been common among human beings for thousands of years and are in principle capable of being resolved by empirical evidence. Here's your amygdala hijack. But when beliefs are anchored in a social vision protected by redefined words, empirical tests are finessed aside. Yes. And in this example, he gives, he gives, he cites multiple Nobel Prize and Pulitzer Prize winners who cite quote unquote quotations that are completely baseless, have no relation to reality. And so I think this is really what it is, is this, this milieu in which people define their own reality. He's mm. calling the social vision. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is this concept of the linguist George Lakoff introduced this concept of framing is that uh-huh. the frame around a conversation and what is, is what is implied, but not said. And if in the frame of the conversation are logical contradictions, amygdala hijacks, poor uses of economic statistics, how can we ever hope to even have a reasonable conversation? Mm-hmm. And this is why I have very little faith in things actually improving through political means, because it will continue to be a confusion and continue to be a debate of framing and like actually understanding the frame that we're operating in. But at a bare minimum, if the listeners can at least have new tools and techniques for sussing out what the frame of the conversation is, we would go a lot deeper, a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Because the actual, what should be achieved in a constructive argument is refutation of the central point. Everything else is details. And what Sol is pointing out is that so many of these political philosophies, the invincible fallacy itself is never even subject to empirical testing because it's carried through with emotional weight or mm-hmm. as part of the prevailing social vision. Yeah, it's almost like that that term he's using, social vision. It's a obviously it's a misuse of the imagination, I would argue. Like we need to use the human imagination to innovate, create things, tinker and whatnot. But when you try to impose your imagine the way you think the world should be, and you try to use coercion to impose that upon people, you, you know, you're using real force to impose imaginary play. And, you know, the shit doesn't work on the playground with kids, right? If a bully breaks into a bunch of kids playing uh, neighborhood or house or whatever, and he says, I'm going to be the new boss, well, the kids will just, they won't play with them, right? They reject the play. And yet that's sort of what we're trying to do here, that, that politicians are using this political rhetoric to try and impose their vision of what should be in the world onto the world. And that creates this um, disequilibrium of sorts, right? Where people are constantly trying to exit these <laughs> imposed imaginary games where they're being victimized wow. or scammed and then trying to yeah. trying to self-organize, right? But that that self that tendency, that natural tendency towards self-organization is running into this uh, attempted imposition of imaginary play. You gave me a really interesting thought there, and that's uh, something you've talked about extensively, the inflation of the monetary base. What are the effects of the inflation or deflation of monetary base on economic calculation and on, I guess, economic self-organization? They're disastrous. And what we're talking about, what Sol is talking about, is this concept of semantic inflation. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, this word, I'm going to talk about violence in just a second. This word used to, you know, used to be worth an ounce of gold. 
And now it is whatever the prevailing social vision says that it is. Mm -hmm. And imagine the, that distortion has a butterfly effect on, on the rest of the organization and dialogue of society. Mm -hmm. So the inflation of the semantic base, I think, is a way to think about that. So, so words are being inflated and deflated without meaning. And I, I want to jump right into violence because that's one that we hear a lot today. And so uh, starting, this started, by the way, in the 60s which is when we began to see this reversal. So that's when this new social vision kicked in. And it's when we began to see a reversal of the hallmarks of civilization, murder rates started to go up, uh, uh, sexually transmitted diseases started to go up, single motherhood started to go up. So in spite of the fact that we see ourselves as being more civilized now, the result of this, the inflation of the semantic base has been a uh, decay. In, mm -hmm. in the in social results and greater disparity actually between different groups and, and, and individuals. And so started in, in the 60s. So this is an example of the redefining of the word violence to the point of being ridiculous. And this is from Professor Kenneth B. Clark. So I'll quote him, the real danger of Harlem is not the infrequent explosions of random lawlessness. The frightening horror of Harlem is the chronic day-to-day -day quiet violence to the human spirit, which exists and is accepted as normal. So here we literally have someone saying real violence doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is this quiet bugbear that I'm going to use to advance my political and economic arguments. And let me just zoom out for a second and say violence used to mean physical harm to an individual. Now it means anything I don't like. And that's true for so many of the of the buzzwords in this chapter, whether whether it's um, diversity or lack of diversity or violence or change, those words have become inflated to the point of being totally subjective. Yeah. I, lo I love this framing actually, right? Semantic inflation. Um, because again, like manipulation of the money, right? If money is this medium we're using to adapt to socioeconomic reality, the realities of supply and demand, right? We're calculating through this medium of money. And if you debase it, you interrupt that rational process. You distort that rational process. The same can be said for words themselves, which are more like the media of exchange of human conception, perhaps. But if all of a sudden you take violence, like there's a consensus point on violence. That is, um, it is the penetration of someone's physical barrier against their will, something like that, right? Like if you're physically harming someone, but if you expand the conceptual or the semantic basis of that, inflate the semantics of violence to mean, what does this guy say here? The chronic day-to-day -day quiet violence to the human spirit, which exists and is accepted as normal. Like, I, I don't even know what that means exactly. So you're, you're just, you're, you're bleeding the concept into another domain uh, that obviously just creates confusion and disrupts any rational dialogue about the concept itself that's being inflated. Yeah, I love that you said that because uh, Soul runs with that. And we've seen this. This is happening today on college campuses around the world. Mm -hmm. This vogue of equating social problems with violence has spawned such spinoffs as justifying campus speech codes and campus riots as responses to, quote, microaggression by visiting speakers saying things considered offensive by those who believe in a particular social vision. Even when these things are not said to the people who claim to be offended, but are said by visiting speakers on campus to those who invited them, it is still called microaggression. 
And what, uh, sorry, a little bit long, but I, I got to go into it because he, mm-hmm. he ends it with a great metaphor. How can A, talking to B, be considered to be aggression, much less equivalent to violence, against C? Clever people might say that A could be saying things to B that could lead to violence against C, even if that were true, and it has not been proved or even tested in most cases. In the same sense, a match can start a forest fire, but nobody calls a match a forest fire. <laughs> and so this is this, uh, it's, it's not reification, it's an exaggeration, it's a kind of slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's very, it's deeply related. So first of all, amazing prescience of Hayek to saying that language, law, and money are the pillars of society. What you're pointing out is that all three of those things can be debased, and we can use these kind of economic metaphors of debasement and inflation to describe the the undesirable changes or the, let's say, perception-distorting effects of those changes. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, This is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, Day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, Just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, CASA provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy 
in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. And then the thing that I'm fascinated by is that language, law, and money in some sense come together in Satoshi's work. Law, in some sense, is smart contracts. Uh, language is the formal language or code. And then money is, hey, no more debate, no more fiat, 21 million. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's amazing, actually. Uh, I still feel like an early optimist, but it would be amazing. I think those who believe in Bitcoin do have the hope that it will affect all three of those spheres of life. Mm-hmm. And these types of redefinitions, it should be as difficult to redefine violence as saying things that I don't like as it is to change 21 million. Yeah, ideally, right? Ideally, we're all... Ideally, the conceptions that we impute to each word would be consistent across individual minds to the degree that they're not is the degree to which we cannot communicate effectively. So, you know, not that that's ever possible. We go back to Hobbes's earlier quote that words, what do you say? Words are the money of fools. (laughs) Like you need some final settlement mechanism. This is why we say talk is cheap, let your money talk for you kind of thing. Like we need to talk and, but there has to be some point of action that actually concretizes uh, everything that's being talked about. And like you said, it's sort of like, it's almost like the opposite. So we want more reified terms, terms that are again, concrete to the reality. But what we're talking about here with semantic inflation is the opposite of that reification. It's more like a nebulization of terms. Maybe where all of a sudden violence can be something that's physical, or there can be this weird spiritual violence over here, or maybe, you know, words or violence over there. Like it, you just, it doesn't, it's no longer a useful tool at that point because it can mean essentially anything. Well, and this is very much the product of a coddled generation, right? If you've never actually had to like physically work hard and, your hands break out in blisters and, you know, you feel like quote unquote, your back is broken. You, someone disagreeing with you in an argument will feel like violence because it's the most violence you've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And so this is again, related to this concept of an amygdala hijack, because I I think we've all experienced this when we're in a heated debate, you, you go into fight or flight as Mm -hmm. if you're being physically attacked, but that is a phantom. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, this is kind of the, the distance that, soul is asking us to produce in our minds so that we can consciously kind of weigh the actual state of affairs rather than saying that, oh, this is violence, and then shutting down discourse entirely and shutting down the ability to see accurately, which was his point, which is Mises' point, is that when the population can do economic calculation accurately based on language, law, and money, then we get the organization of society, not the other way around, which is, oh, we're going to paint whatever vision we think appropriate on paper, which is arbitrary and not connected to empirical reality in any way. And that, in fact, leads to the opposite in spite of any good rhetoric. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you could maybe argue that all of this is sort of commercial in nature or, or based on commerce, because if I'm, if I'm using words to sell you a certain vision, presumably that vision, that social vision as soul calls it is intended to ultimately ground out in some action, right? Like a policy action of some kind. And um, obviously with, with money, it's, it's very commercial in nature. So if we, look at it from that lens um 
it would be much more useful if people could not be deceived in these commercial interactions, whether they are, whether these are debates about social vision or, or just money itself, right? That you don't want, um, I guess you could say price signal distortion is like a, uh, a way of confounding that, that understanding in the marketplace. Cause now all of a sudden you see a price move and you just don't know, was that, policy action or is this actual consumers that want more of the thing um i mean we keep saying this from different ways but you're just introducing this tool whether it's the word or money these are both medium of media of exchange right the words a media of exchange for human conception money perhaps is the media of exchange for human action something that carries a little bit more signal but when you distort the media you're interrupting the capacity for people to coordinate themselves and that this that is the deleterious consequences that flow from that are everything you want to avoid right if you want harmonious productive prosperous peaceful human interaction you need the media to be um integral i suppose yeah you you got me thinking that uh perhaps redefining terms is like a hard fork because it's not compatible with the prior set of exchanges and the prior sets of UTXOs. And this actually goes into history. And and one of the words that uh, Sol says has also been redefined is the word of change. And what he points out is that the period of the 20s was one uh, under uh, President Coolidge and one other. uh, The period of the 20s was a time of tremendous economic growth tremendous improvement in standard of living, tremendous improvement in the distribution of income. But because that was uh, achieved through free market policies, Mm -hmm. the 20s wasn't called change, and it rarely gets a historical footnote. The 30s was called change because it was about Roosevelt's new social vision. And guess what? People were poorer, society was weaker, there was greater chaos. And so it's amazing to me that this uh, redefinition of terms is baked into the pie of history even itself and then again in this chapter he shows stiglitz another nobel prize winning mm-hmm. economist buying into the the fallacies of history and we're going to go to some specific of those but what i want to show is that so this idea of tax cuts for the rich which we've attacked earlier in the podcast so it flies in the face of empirically what happened during harding and coolidge that was by the way so that this change in tax rates, so there was a lowering of the tax rate during the Coolidge administration and the Harding administrations. But the fact that that change brought a much higher tax revenue from high-income people, mm-hmm. both absolutely and as a percentage of all income tax revenues collected, and this is exactly what President Coolidge said was his objective, and yet it is totally ignored by history. And we, in fact, call uh, periods of economic hardship changed. And, you know, this is what I think even someone like the new, the what is it called? The Green New Deal or whatever. Like, it's mm-hmm. more like the new raw deal is what we should be calling it. <laughs> but again, this is the co-opting of the term change. It, it doesn't have to imply something good. It means a difference. The mm-hmm. 20s were a far more prosperous period for the country under something much closer to free market economics. Mm-hmm. And yet the type of change that gets held up on the floor of Congress is the 30s. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. I'll, I'll read an excerpt just on that to kind of flesh out the details. This is from his sidebar on page 135. He said, in many, if not most, histories of the United States, the stock market crash in 1929 is presented as the cause of the Great Depression of the 1930s with its massive unemployment. 
But in fact, unemployment never reached double digits in any of the 12 months that followed the stock market crash in October 1929. Unemployment peaked at 9% two months after the crash and began an irregular decline that brought it down to 6.3% in June 1930. That was when a massive increase in tariffs was passed, despite widely publicized warnings from more than a thousand economists that this would make matters worse. Five months after the smooth, I'm sorry, the Smoot-Hawley tariff bill was passed, unemployment hit double digits and remained in double digits for every subsequent month during the rest of the decade of the 1930s. So just a, you know, great. <laughs> fleshing out of exactly what you just said, that we hold up the 1930s as if there was some great change that, um, was it the, the new deal? Is that what they called it back then? Yeah. Ro like, Roosevelt was the new deal. Yeah. Right. But the reality and they're is even invoking that language today. Yeah. The reality is we had more positive change prior to the intervention. The intervention itself caused uh, negative change, at least in an economic sense. And here's what Sol says about exactly exactly the point you just made. In any event, the intellectuals of the decade of the of the 1920s did not deserve the honorific title of an era of change. So, so they it was the decade of the 1930s which brought that kind of political change, and which has since been celebrated as much as the 1920s were denigrated. So, there is absolutely a rewriting of history there in that uh, in the debasement of the meaning of that word change. Mm. And now I, I want to get into. Uh, Really, where where Sowell, without ever explicitly allying himself with the school, really makes the Austrian argument as well as I've ever seen it made for the market process outside of Austrianism. He says, mm. he's talking about Roosevelt's time, to the intellectual elites of that time and later, relying more on market processes than on political interventions in the economy was abdicating responsibility for the public welfare rather than simply a different belief by Presidents Harding and Coolidge that the public welfare would be better served by letting markets function under known and stable laws, rather than with unpredictable ad hoc government interventions. And this is Roosevelt in his own words saying, I am going to tinker much like Keynes. I'm just going to tinker and hope that I don't destroy the economy. The country needs, and unless I mistake its temper, the country demands bold, persistent experimentation. It is common sense to, to take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it and frankly try another, but above all, try something. And this is, you know, how many times does, do we have to destroy human prosperity with socialist and redistributionist ideas for it actually to be subject to an empirical test? And yeah. if I may, I want to tie that to, to Mises. Okay, so what is being said here? So first of all, the first straw man, which is inherent in this, is that if we don't have central planning, we will have no planning. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I want the audience to understand for all time is that the opposite of central planning is not chaos. The opposite of central planning is distributed planning. Mm -hmm. And distributed planning, we've shown in some of our other work, takes into account much more information than central planning ever could. So central yeah. planning is a subset of the kinds of things you can do in, in distributed planning. And uh, just I uh, have to tie in Mises here. So when socialists declare that order and organization are be to substituted for the anarchy of production, conscious action for the alleged planlessness of capitalism, true cooperation for competition, production for use, for production for profit, what they have in mind, this is a killer blow, is always the substitution of the exclusive and monopolistic power of only one agency, watch this, 
through the infinite multitude of the plans of the individual consumers and those attendings to the wishes of the consumers, the entrepreneurs, capitalists. That is it, right? It's, we. I mean, you could say probably the core theme of this entire series is the debunking of central planning, right? Like it's ineffective, doesn't work, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean no planning, right? It's, it's centralized one single agency doing the planning for all individual agencies, like consciousnesses, minds, or you have individuals self-sorting, self-organizing, planning for themselves. And for, you know, a great take on that, you could go to Hayek's the use of knowledge in society that just argues it's like a, it's a computational problem, right? It's central computing versus distributed computing, which one gets more uh, throughput basically. Um, and then even what uh, was it the Coolidge quote, I think you read where he said, look, we need to tinker and we need rather than having the Roosevelt. Yeah. Rather than having these ad hoc things, what would be really useful is to have kind of like a stable, predictable policy. Again, we're back to this very basic intuition of like people need a level playing field, right? Simple, predictable, fixed rules. And then uh, they need to be made allowed to play and tinker on top of that. That's what, you know, Taleb would say entrepreneurship is tinkering. That's all it really is is you're just trying different well, things to see what works and um, adapting. And and on the individual level, tinkering is a fantastic thing and we want that optionality. But for FDR to say, well, I'm just going to try a bunch of policies that, and you know, let's see four months later, if they're four years later, if they worked, uh, is, is a luxury we can't afford. And right. now Sol goes into an economic study of the Great Depression in a leading scholarly journal in 2004, concluded that the effects of government policies had prolonged the Great Depression by several years. But the contrary view has largely prevailed by sheer repetition and by its consonance with the prevailing social vision. It has been an ongoing triumph of words over demonstrable realities. We are expected today to automatically follow the kinds of government interventionist policies of the 30s and to disdain the policies of the 1920s when, in the world of words, there was no change because there was no government income redistribution policy but empirically, people were much better off. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Um, and back to the topic of higher tax rates leading to lower tax revenues. Um, we've talked about this before. I think the Laffer curve work's been done on this. Um, I'll read an excerpt here that he wrote. He said, in 1920, when the highest tax rate on the highest incomes was 73%, People with incomes of 100000 or more paid 30% of all income tax revenues. After the tax rate on the highest incomes was cut to 24%, people in that same income bracket paid 65% of all income tax revenues in 1929. Nevertheless, in the world of words, these were called tax cuts for the rich and have remained so ever since in utter disregard of empirical evidence as to the actual amount of tax revenues collected from high-income taxpayers at different tax rates. There were similar results from later tax rate reductions during the Kennedy, Reagan, and George W. Bush administrations. And he goes on to write, whether this will happen again in any other circumstances is something that might be debated instead of fighting a straw man like a non-existent trickle-down theory. Back in 1899, long before the income tax rate controversies arose, 
Oliver Wendell Holmes advanced the general proposition that catchwords can, quote, delay further analysis for 50 years, unquote. The catchwords trickle-down theory have been going strong for decades and show no sign of weakening. So there's this kind of strange feedback, right? If you improperly frame something, you can actually, you've created a, a false fictitious reality, but it can have very real effects on actual human action and socioeconomic reality. In this chapter, Sol says the single most important thing to know about trickle-down theory is that no one has ever actually espoused this theory. It is a 100% straw man, and he catches the likes of uh, Joseph Stiglitz, Alan Blinder, Paul Krugman, denouncing what he calls a non-existent theory. Hmm. And the, the key thing here is that this theory has nothing to do with wealth trickling down at all. It has everything to do with attempts to create additional wealth in the country as a whole. And that's why Kennedy said a rising tide lifts all boats. So that's a great example here. So um, we've, we've had we've talked about the debasement of terms, but then there's also the creation of these uh, straw man terms or red herring mm. terms. And boy, I, I, I have to tell you, I still see trickle down like I see it in the YouTube comments section. I see it on mm -hmm. Facebook. And isn't it amazing that people are actually attacking a phantom? And that that error is propagated all the way to Nobel Prize winning economists. Like what hope is there other than people thinking? Yeah, I don't, that's interesting. I'm reminded of like Dawkins' selfish gene, right? Where the meme just replicates. It's, how effective is it at replicating itself? It doesn't matter how effective it is at dealing with reality necessarily. Um, and something about trickle down apparently has just captured the the human imagination in a way that has allowed it to propagate for many generations. And the question is, what is the opposite of the straw man of trickle down? It's some kind of redistributionist policy. And this is, of course, I guess at the heart of Keynesian economics is that to prevent people from hoarding, you should inflate the money supplies so that people are encouraged to spend. And there's redistribution through that spending. And the funny thing is, is that Sowell goes back to Keynes's own work in 33 and Keynes suggested, Keynes knew about the Laffer curve well before Laffer, who's almost mm -hmm. a contemporary economist. And, and Keynes said the following. So again, it's it's not even, you know, the ultimate father of, of uh, what could be called trickle-down theory knew that the Laffer curve was a thing. So who said in 1933 that taxation may be so high as to defeat its object? Given sufficient time to gather the fruits, a reduction of taxation will run a better chance than an increase of balancing the budget. There it is from Keynes himself. And I guess what's amazing here is why the invincible fallacies are so invincible, even if you're uh, the most highly educated economist one can imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's very, maybe we don't have enough terminological precision for these, or, or hmm. maybe these bad ideas have to get smashed against the wall for us to figure out, you know, how precise our terms need to be. And maybe that's what we're studying here. It's like, People using words well, that they thought adequately described reality. Then when the spaghetti is thrown against the wall, it doesn't stick and you have to reevaluate. Yes. It reminds me of this vibing versus threading. Like trickle down is a very powerful vibing. It has no threading value whatsoever. There's mm -hmm. nothing to respond to. But what the reason that the term persists is that politicians and other rabble rousers can gain the attention and energy of the populace 
by suggesting to them that they're oppressed because that's all trickle down theory is trickle down theory says basically you know you're going to get someone else's crumbs and you know what that's deeply upsetting to our animal brains (laughs) (laughs) right forget about whether or not that's what's actually happening forget about whether or not that's what policy interventions actually exacerbate but uh it's a classic amygdala hijack and and one of the things that that Sowell talks about is this concept of fictitious villains, right? And so I guess if a politician is going to sell you on the idea that their policies and their ideas can save you from whatever suffering you're in, they have to create a dragon, so to speak. They have to create a bugbearer, fictitious villain. And uh, what's really interesting, I guess, Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, has been painted as as one of these uh, free market villains, even though if you actually go back, there's two empirical facts. Okay, so let me explain for a moment. These concepts of trickle-down theory, of tax, cut, tax cuts for the rich, go all the way back to the 20s and the 30s, and the debates that were being had about the free market and the reaction to the free market, which was FDR, like the ultimate statist, the ultimate interventionist, which you know people have even – modern politicians have even styled themselves uh, as a, a new FDR. And But yet, Sowell shows that in spite of this villainization of Mellon and the market process, two things are – absolutely true from history. And any student, forget about the fact that Nobel Prize winners get this wrong, can check this in two objective accounts. First of all, Mellon wrote a book during this time. He made it very clear that he thought the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few was evil. Mm -hmm. Second of all, the IRS tax records are objectively available to anybody who wants to read them. And what you can see is that the tax rate went down and tax revenues went up and the share of taxes paid by the wealthy went up. So uh, I guess I'll just pause there and say, you know, this is another part of the political sleight of hand that is engaged in at all levels of scholarship to completely recast the path and make a fictitious villain that never existed and then just attack that straw man, which is very easy because there's no counterexample or counter evidence to this imaginary thing that you're – well, there's counter evidence, but it's – what you then become a fool if you argue with somebody who's attacking a straw man. Yeah. It's extremely pernicious, and it does require this, what we're doing here, this kind of like subtle exploration of language, right, of how it's being twisted and manipulated to to read between the lines, I guess, and see what's really going on. Um, I don't know, man, very, very tricky stuff. It, I wonder if humans are just always going to be perennially subject to these types of deceptions well maybe on the semantic level it's entirely possible Mm -hmm. but this is the beauty of a medium of exchange in the monetary sense is that the precision with which we can exchange words is questionable Mm -hmm. for a long time we could or during the most prosperous periods in american history we could objectively exchange gold or silver and maybe i gave you a silver certificate a piece of paper but it was understood that that promissory note was redeemable for an actual commodity. Mm-hmm. And so my hope, and you know, we, hopefully many of us have been in foreign countries and y- you can go, go to a foreign bazaar. And as long as you have the local currency or a currency that's valued than the more local currency, you can get along just fine with people and you can mm-hmm. exchange and you can make your way through life. And so I think the point for thought, this is the, I guess the really interesting thought you've given me is that, Maybe maybe the lesson of Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, and anybody who's tried to argue or change minds, even with noble intentions on those platforms, knows what I'm talking about. Maybe they're showing that verbal communication does not scale. 
Mm. And so now what other information networks are at a, our disposal? And I would ver I very much like the idea. I don't think it's complete and I'm not so sanitized as to believe that Bitcoin can solve all of our problems, but I very much like the idea that we can objectively agree on a SATs price. And mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I can we can affect an exchange by transferring you SATs and you have A, no fear that those SATs will be debased uh, over time. Yeah. And B, no, there's no chance that the SATs which were assigned over to you, well, modulus right. some crypto primitives breaking are going to be taken away. Yeah, it's a great point. And then, you know, entrepreneurship, uh, to be an innovator, it necessitates this kind of forward looking orientation. Like you're trying to map your current action to future consumer demands, right? And so there's, there's this, you have to play with language, right? When you're raising capital or building the business or engaging in sales and marketing. So you have to play with the, the money of fools as Hob, Hobbes calls it. But to be able to settle that into something that's very tightly coupled to reality, I think in the long run, would it's just going to reward those who best map their language to reality over time, right? So like the entrepreneurs that were most adequately predicting where things would go and creating a business or a vision to satisfy those consumer wants would be the ones that would succeed and those that did not would fail. So perhaps in the long run, just by virtue of having a, a freer market and more uh, a greater intensity of entrepreneurship and exchange, let's say that you'd get people that are speaking more precisely and dealing with, with reality um, more deftly, even in, in the money of fools language itself. Yeah. This <laughs> takes us to the coda. And I think Zoll finishes this chapter very strongly. And I hope to, spend a lot of time on this section because it's the most profound as the most Austrian overtones. It's the best defense of the free market that I've seen. And I think we've come upon at least in this book and what you were just, so soul makes a further distinction to what you just made. And it isn't that words are inherently fuzzy. He says there are two different senses of a word. There's declaration, which can be tested empirically and there's insinuation. And what he says is what words openly declare can be tested against empirical evidence, but what words insinuate can bypass that safeguard now. And this is where he mm. really, I think for me, where I really received a lot of energy from the chapter, even an innocent sounding phrase like income distribution endlessly, let me make sure I got that right. Yes. Even an innocent sounding phrase like income distribution endlessly repeated can suggest a process in which income exists somehow and is then distributed as one might distribute food at a dinner table or Chris or gifts at Christmas. But that's the problem. Income isn't distributed at all. And there's no question of whether it was just or unjust because, so again, most income in a market economy is earned directly by providing something that someone else wants and values enough to pay for it, whether what they're paying for is labor, housing, or diamonds. Hmm. Yeah, it's so, so good. Um, the the metaphor is not proper, right? Like income distribution, you it invokes this uh, experience, perhaps what we've all had, right? Having food distributed at the dinner table, but that's not how income is actually generated. It's generated through this process of earning, right? You're actually working to create something that someone else wants and then exchanging that thing with them for something you want. So it's the, the metaphor. It's weird. I wonder how, like, what is it about income distribution that becomes such a sticky metaphor if it's not apt? 
Be, I, I can I can answer that, and I, I, it is the this primal desire as individuals that we should be meted out an equal proportion as our siblings, mm-hmm. right? So so, and what I'm thinking of, like, let's go to something really primitive, like like a bird, you know, feeding the infants in the nest, right, mm-hmm. or feeding the hatchlings in the nest. So I mean, th- there is a deep sense of injustice at the level of the reptilian brain if someone else was given something and you weren't. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just a classic amygdala hijack is that, hey, there was this distribution process. This is, again, uh, how this idea of, of the system being rigged or fixed comes in, which is another falsehood that we've attacked in the past, is that, um, you know, there was a distribution and you weren't in on it. And then, yeah, people are going to be mad. And well, I think what Seoul is showing is that people's political energies, uh, their animus is harnessed through their economic ignorance. Because mm. this 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 argument gets passed around like, well, redistribution doesn't mean anything because there was no distribution in the first place. Mm-hmm. But if I can tick people off, if I can tick people off and suggest that somebody got a bigger distribution, you did, mm. then I can get them to vote for me and all of my interventionist policies, consequences be damned. Yeah. Oh, man, it's... Um... Very, very trying to like see through this problem, but there's just not really a good way other than Bitcoin, right? Give people recourse to some form of wealth that can't be redistributed. Right. And that lets them circumvent the, this metaphor in actuality. That's, that's the economic level of the exchange, but there's also now people can X-ray listeners can X-ray the difference between the declaration of a word and the insinuation of a word mm. and and so you know with so and he goes through this so first of all uh, again nobel prize winning economist joseph stiglitz he says uh, the quote the share of, of income grabbed by the top one percent okay then uh, a new york times editorial which says the top one percent have cornered an ever larger share of the nation's nation's wealth okay then we have barack obama saying quote the top 10 percent no longer takes in one third of our income it now takes half. And now here's Seoul. So here's something that can help that's not Bitcoin. It's literally a filter in your brain. Here's what Seoul says. In each case, the key trick is to verbally collectivize wealth produced by individuals and then depict those individuals who produce more of it and receive payment for doing so as having deprived others of their fair share. Gets mm-hmm. better. With such word games, one might say that Babe Ruth took an unfair share of the home runs hit by the New York Yankees. <laughs> The mic drop right there. Right there. Yeah. Right. So, so the idea is that, I mean, like, that's not what Babe Ruth was actually, this is the difference between rent sinking and actually creating economic value. If you took Babe Ruth off of the Yankees, it's not right. like the home runs would suddenly like go to the other players. They just would have lost her and, you know, they, exactly. they would have had that many less home runs. Yeah. Yeah. They were earned, right? Oh, man. So good. And, this goes into international economics as well. So uh, Sol says, sometimes these word games are played on an international scale. The wealth created in the United States by Americans is rhetorically transformed into part of, quote, the world's wealth from which Americans take an unfairly large share. Actually, no. 
we have a nation which has to some limited extent been capitalist, limited extent. We don't have real capitalism. Mm. Therefore, it should not be criticized. But to a limited extent, we've had free markets. We've had optionality for individuals. And that nation has produced a tremendous amount. There's nothing that we've taken. What we got, we, mm-hmm. we did in exchange with the rest of the world. Now, this isn't to say that America doesn't do unfair or wrong things. But it is to say that this frame of America taking from mm-hmm. the world's wealth, when in fact we're creating a huge portion right. of the pie, is a completely false insinuation and is a complete mischaracterization of what is actually happening. And that is, you know, there are lots of ways to characterize economics. The study of hidden consequences is one. And as such, if we want to see the hidden consequences, we need to have more accurate models for reality. And that's why I think it's so beautiful that Sol gives us examples of Babe Ruth, you know, taking home runs from the rest of the Yankees mm-hmm. being one that we can use. Now, when we read an economic headline or when we hear a political agenda, I'm like, wait, is that what's actually happening? We should be very careful, in fact, that the, the term, the, the argument and the frame around the discussion isn't already such that only one conclusion is even possible. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, I often, for simplicity's sake, try to boil it down to making versus taking, right? That there's two mutually exclusive roads to wealth acquisition. You can either make it, which is to work yeah. and trade for it, or there's taking, which is just unilateral theft or confiscation. And so it seems like it's conflating those, right? It's like, well, the incomes that we're talking about were actually made, right? Like people went out, did work yes. and sold products or services, but then it's couched in this language of, oh, the top 1% are taking a third of the income or something like that. And so this, there's a misframing there. And then there's also just, I guess that belies a general misunderstanding of zero sum versus positive sum gain. Yes. Right. Like it's not... <laughs> your win does not meet, necessitate someone else's loss if it's a positive sum game. That's only in the case of a zero sum game where wealth is you know, somehow in fixed supply. But that's not, I mean, that's why we're doing economics, right? The division of labor is what's expanding total wealth creation per, per capita or per unit of, of labor input. And, um, you know, again, there's just enough complexity there or maybe enough terminological uh, lack of clarity, maybe people to understand these terms or understand these dynamics enough that you can get away with this political rhetoric of oh, the top 1% or which first of all, the top 1%, as we already said, is not any static cohort. People are moving into and out of that 1% all the time, depending over the time period. And then also they're not taking anyone's income. It's being earned, right? It's, it's being, it's making, not taking. And the speed with which any of the economic strata turnover is exactly the speed with which you can get out of whichever lower stratum you're in right. that you don't happen to like, which is actually an amazing point. And uh, there's so many so many deep points there uh, around Austrian economics. So the first was this, I, I love this framing of zero-sum versus non-zero-sum. And the idea being that making is a non-zero-sum. It's a fundamentally generative activity, whereas taking is, is rent-seeking or is a zero-sum game. And that is why in Austrian economics, there's a few important ideas. So first is that profit is a psychic phenomenon. And if both people in exchange can profit, that is the very definition of wealth creation. Whereas if the exchange was not voluntary, then someone was disadvantaged. Such a simple idea, which seems to escape the, the political consciousness. 
And let's see if I can come up with, ah, yes. Okay. So to that point, uh, this is where, I, I don't know. I, I felt like the spirit of Mises was somehow being channeled by, by soul in this, this mm. paragraph. But what he says is that euphemisms are another form of insinuation that enables ideas to bypass factual or analytical tests. When John Rawls in his, a theory of justice repeatedly referred to outcomes that quote, society can arrange these euphemisms finessed aside the plain fact that only government has the power to override millions of people's mutually agreed transaction terms. Interior decorators arrange. Governments compel. It is not a subtle distinction. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, right? Just using uh, a term that I guess invokes something that's more peaceful, right? You're just, oh, we're just arranging arranging the affairs of a group of people, but the truth is there it's compulsion, right? There's force beneath that ar- arranging. Well, an arrangement isn't even possible. So this is the ludic fallacy again, mm-hmm. is that the central planner has a model in their minds, which they believe they have a chessboard in their minds and they mm-hmm. believe, well, if I put this knight here and this rook here and this bishop here and this pawn here, we'll get to society. That's totally false. And what soul just goes on to say something as beautifully as Hayek himself could have said it is that no, you arrange, furniture mm-hmm. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you're, you don't arrange people which is the invincible fallacy in motion is that you know yeah. wherever we see an arrangement which is a form of structure that we don't like we're going to reverse that arrangement but this completely neglects the fact that political power emanates from the barrel of a gun mm-hmm. as mal famously said now Sol goes on he says nor is rawls the only income redistributionist to evade the reality of compulsion which is to say the loss of millions of people's freedom to make their own decisions about their own lives when an inequality of economic outcomes is replaced by a far more dangerous increase in equality of power. Unequal economic outcomes nevertheless permit even the less fortunate to have rising standards of living, but power is inherently relative so that more power for some means less freedom for others. Mm. And so in the idea that, well, first of all, income is not distributed, it's earned, and people can and societies cannot be arranged. They can be compelled in different arrangements. Once you x-ray all of that, in the name of more equality, what we are doing is destroying the freedom of individuals and creating mm-hmm. an inequality of power. That's the simplest way to say it, mm-hmm. is that all of these programs for so-called better outcomes actually create a massive disparity, a state that can give you everything that you want can also take everything from you. It's really that simple. And I've never, outside of the Austrian literature, I've never seen it phrased as, as concisely as it is here. And I'm going to give you a thought to run with as we as we start to, to culminate this chapter. And it's that people were very worried about the contagion of viruses mm. and are, okay, that's one consideration. Has anybody stopped to worry about the contagion of authoritarianism? And that's what Sol is saying here is that you do for a, a little bit of intervention requires a little bit of compulsion. And mm-hmm. then what you're doing is creating a vast disparity between the populace and the government. And what what Tapa says is that this redistribution is redistribution in name only. The actual differences are in the power to control. So here we go back to Hayek's paradox is that somehow the idea of social justice is that government can make people more equal by treating them unequally, which is a paradox in and of itself. Yeah, man, so much good stuff there. The ludic fallacy, 
I think this is probably closely related to Tlub's um, mistaking the cat for the washing machine, right? That you're starting to treat complex systems, which are individual market actors or the entities that they create as if they are static chess pieces on a game board. And so you, you can't just intervene into that system and not expect there to be feedback from these agents of action, right? They're going to react to your, to your action. And, um, yeah, in order, what you would really want ultimately, I, I guess, is just this equality of, I want to use my words carefully here. He uses the word power, which I think is a little bit ambiguous. So I, I like the word authority more, right? It's, there's an equality of authority that, mm. you know, the root word of authority is author basically, right? So it's, it's, you're giving people the power to author their own lives, not giving people, you're honoring the reality that people have the responsibility to honor their own lives. And which I guess gets into that old saying that the government that governs best governs least, right? It's all you really want government to do is maintain that level playing field, right? Life, liberty, and property, and then leave everyone alone. Let just everyone mind their own business. And that's what creates the best individual and collective outcomes. Um, and you don't have to engage in the ludic fallacy for that. You're, you're actually just letting the, letting the game be played rather than trying to dictate the outcome of the game, which not only does it not work, but it also, you know, leads to these inequalities of, of authority we've described here that leads to atrocities across history. And this, I guess, ludos Greek for games is ludus or ludus. Hmm. And I, I would go a step further in saying that stepping out of the ludic fallacy is stepping out of these political mind games, which are misframed and mischaracterized and into the hard reality of the decisions we need to make as acting individuals to remove our own uneasiness and to affect the exchanges that we think will, will lead to the, the, our, our own prosperity and the, those of our families and, and those of the planet around us. And, you know, we've got plenty, I think, uh, of, of room here to, to realize that, um, you know, the terms, a lot of this chapter in the world of words was about terms that have been debased and destroyed and redefined and mm -hmm. freedom and capitalism are absolutely two of those words. And I am amazed looking, especially at the, the last, you know, three to five years of pandemic policy and how, uh, the word freedom has been twisted and contorted to mean ha harming others being selfish. Now, in no case, and I don't think any social philosopher would attempt to justify that freedom allows you to harm others, but it never meant that. Mm -hmm. And and I want to uh, I want to go through, let's see, a quotation that that Sol shares of an example. Let's see, I just want to see where he pulled this from. Of how the the term freedom. Okay, yes, Professor Angus Deaton. Okay, and so. <laughs> This results-oriented definition, a redefinition, or debasement of freedom is something to examine. In this book, when I speak of freedom, it is the freedom to live a good life and to do the things that make life worth living. That's okay. Seems reasonable. The absence of freedom is poverty, deprivation, and poor health. Long the lot of much of humanity and still the fate of an outrageously high proportion of the world today. So, I mean, we're doomed. If people can take a word as simple as freedom, which is simply the autonomy of the individual until unless they infringe on the autonomy of other individuals and redefine it to mean that you now have a, a right to a basic income 
and that somehow without freedom, you will be in a state of poverty. I mean, this is absurd when exactly empirically the opposite is true. Yeah. Once again, this, all this talk of rights, you know, we, Rarely do we stop to consider that every right, right? This is some thing that you have. Uh, there's some the thing that you as a human being just have the intrinsic right to receive. That doesn't just come out of the, the wild blue yonder, right? There's some responsibility attached to every right. So if you have a right to three hot meals a day, right, which is a very easily sellable um egalitarian notion, right? Everyone should be able to eat. That sounds great. Uh, No one supports hunger, right? Everyone wants everyone to be able to eat. Yeah, exactly. But the flip side of that is, okay, if that's a basic human right, three hot meals a day or shelter, whatever your thing is, the question is whose responsibility is it to provide the three hot meals per day or the shelter or whatever the thing is. And so you can't just say something is a human right and expect it to magically appear. Um, and I think too, on the, the topic of freedom, you know, i I saw this once that life, liberty, and property are the three temporal aspects of freedom. So again, this is in the 1215 Magna Carta, like that's what all the government was supposed to do. That was the, the philosophical scope of government is to basically preserve life, liberty, and property. Well, if you, Take someone's life, right? If you kill them, well, you've stolen their future freedom. If you take someone's liberty, right? You incarcerate them or you restrain them somehow. You've taken their their liberty, their freedom to move about in the present moment. You've restrained them from, from options that would otherwise be available to them. And if you take someone's property, well, you're actually taking the fruits of their past freedom, right? Things that they've gone out and earned for themselves in the world. So it's like... Again, we're we're kind of trapped in language where maybe these terms, especially the highest levels, are maybe somewhat ambiguous and imprecise, but there's there seems to be a very deep connection between the notion of freedom itself um and that scope of government, right? Just giving people this level playing field of life, liberty, and property actually supports the most individual freedom, which then furthers if you consider freedom in the other sense of like actually just options available to people, it actually supports the conditions under which innovation and wealth creation occur, which means people get more options to do things in the world. Like, you know, we talking on a zoom call right now, this was not an option 25 years ago, flying from New York to LA was not an option 200 years ago, things like this. So there's this like flywheel effect of freedom. If we could just, get out of our own way, right? And just let let nature run its course um, without trying to intervene or or force one person's imaginary playscape on other people. Yeah, and it's it's so much more than nature that's self-organizing because I, I don't know where the distinction lies between humanity and nature. And I guess there's a whole interesting philosophical discussion to be had is what the line between nature and technology is. But this is much more than letting soulless forces prevail. This is about the rights of the individuals to self-organize and Mm self-determine. And, you know, what occurred to me, I started thinking about 1984 and Animal Farm and the debasement of the word equality 
some are more equal than others. Well, you just debase the word equality. And then remember, I think it was, was it 1984 that introduced this concept of double speak? I'm not sure. We've, we've been living right? and the idea. <laughs> the idea behind double speak is you, you choose terms. We've talked about this legislation often having, if you want to know what legislation does, just assume it does the opposite of whatever it's titled. Now, yes. starting back with president Woodrow Wilson, so he's calling the proposed benefits of expanded government power, quote, new freedom. So this is, I guess, the first interesting thing is that, you know, we shouldn't be too depressed about the current state of affairs in 2023 because it's been going on for some, more than 100 years right now. But, but the thing to really be present to is, is how uh, these words like freedom are being redefined. And it's, it's amazing the liberty that has been taken with the word freedom. And, and this is now Sol. He says, Yet many intellectuals living in the safety and comfort of free societies have found it expedient to redefine freedom so that an expansion of government determination of economic outcomes through expansion of government compulsion is not seen as a trade-off of freedom, but simply as an expansion of freedom as conveniently redefined. So this seems to me uh, an infinite license for interfering with and uh, frankly impoverishing society. Because the word freedom doesn't mean anything anymore, and all you have right. to do is pick a healthy noun, a healthy-sounding noun or adjective, and hide behind it and say that you're – and then – but actually in the name of that, you, you know, you, you propose some, some government expansion, which is going to deprive individuals of their options and their rights. Yeah, it's, it's – the other one that comes to mind here is liberal, right? Like in the U.S., we talk about conservatives versus liberals and – liberality i used to refer to low to no government right or like we said earlier the government governs best governs least and now it's become its precise opposite right it's very big government large regulation large intervention um in all aspects of life up to and including you know forced medical procedures gender reassignment etc 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 so um we have to, I guess, you know, we have to fight, fight, even that's kind of a word that's maybe a slippery one. We have to make sure that we take action to preserve the integrity of these words, mm. the, the integrity of the consensus on these words, because if that consensus is broken, that manifests itself as divisiveness in society. If you think freedom is government power, I think freedom is individual autonomy. We're going to have a really hard time having a, a rational conversation about anything. What do we do about that? And how, what does that mean? I'm, you know, this goes all the way back to our, our podcasts on Austrian economics is that if you're going to have a formal system for economics, you need to be very, very careful about your terms and definitions. Is there any hope even of preventing that, that erosion or redefinition of the meaning of words? Do we just have to say, well, it's either in code or it's not real? I don't know. I mean, I boil it all the way down to just if you make it more expensive to steal from people, right, then the politician, the politician that's exceptionally gifted with rhetoric and intrigue just won't be rewarded as much, right? His his profession becomes less economically viable to the extent that property is less viable. So hmm. in a nutshell, what I'm saying is like Bitcoin maybe fixes this. I don't think it ever fixes words necessarily, but it at least creates conditions in that the 
individual that's not productive and is scamming people essentially cannot earn as much money over time. And it at least destroys the, one of the operant fallacies that you never run out of other people's money, right? Which yeah. is part of, so there's a conflict of interest in, in this declaration versus insinuation. This is one of the things about populism is that there is a conflict of interest between going along with the political slogans and programs of the day and which is also known as hearing what you want to hear and facing reality. And so mm. that's another thing, right? So that is part of that conflict of interest will go away because there will be no collective money to spend, which is the root of a lot of this evil. And, right. and I want to go into, so again, this is the thing, I guess the subtlety of this chapter is that the fallacies that soul brings to the foreground are committed by some of the most decorated academics. It's like, for example, one cannot be free if one cannot achieve his goals. This is soul, this is an argument he's attacking according to an influential book by two Yale professors. In their definition, consumers, quote, are not free in the market if high costs prohibit a choice that could be made available to them by sharing the commodity through collective choice. <laughs> so with collective choice apparently being another euphemism for government. So here is the price fixing argument, like being made, what is the idea that like, which, which we know destroys economies and destroys economic calculation being now passed under another veil. So I guess I'll add to that critical thinking. Right, which is you know this is the thing that Seoul wants to engender in the in the rest of the world. It, it, it's a gift that I feel to some extent I've received from him, and critical thinking and part of the conservative mind view. And what I mean conservative in this context means somebody who respects the inherent complexity of systems is to be skeptical about the results of an intervention. And maybe you know that is a really simple meme. And then, and we have history as our guide. That's a really simple meme that our listeners can pick up and like, hang on, am I actually trying to change a part on a cat? Which is to say, am I actually intervening in a complex situation and expecting a simple outcome when the outcome is not going to be simple? And that gets us a long way. That appreciation gets us a long way towards debunking a lot of these false political programs and, uh, you know, calling rebranding freedom as collective choice and actually meaning that that that's the government uh, use forcibly compelling people to arrange themselves yeah i so the argument there was if a consumer is not free if they cannot afford a thing essentially <laughs> yeah that's right well, uh, are not free in the market if high cost prohibit a choice well what you have to prohibit choice somehow in the marketplace because guess what there's unlimited wants and limited stuff so how are you going to constrain the choice? If you take that argument the to its irony, extreme, then everyone should just, you know, own Lamborghinis and private islands and have infinite wealth and nobody works. It's like a socialist fantasy that obviously doesn't work. Which is very much the fantasy of transaction fees should be some number. No, they're yeah. determined by a market force. And uh, what I'm struck by in here is that they haven't read The Road to Serfdom. So we have two Yale professors, okay? And the definitive turn down The Road to Serfdom is price controls. Because mm -hmm. once you can dictate the price, you can dictate what services are valued one to another. You effectively become the authoritarian of authoritarians because yeah. you can tell people what to sell and at what price. So uh, I wonder... What should what should what's our parting thought here? So so we've gone through. We started with the world of numbers last chapter. Uh, mm -hmm. We went through the world of words here. We saw declaration versus insinuation. 
We saw examples of words that have been redefined and debased over time. We looked at ex post versus ex ante. And so the reason I'm recapitulating this is so that the people now have a framework where which they can stop and pause for a moment and say, hang on, I might, I might have just been amygdala hijacked. Like I might have just been triggered by what was just said, but is it actually true? And Seoul has kind of, I actually have one, one more rubric that I mind with, but let me pause there and let you jump in. I was just reminded of a meme that I saw recently that I think is funny and hopefully apt to this conversation, but it said that if I had a dollar for every time socialism worked, I would have zero dollars. And funny enough, if socialism, if, I had a, if socialism actually did work, I would also have zero dollars. So it's just like this. We all want to plan our lives and affairs and think about the future and, you know, work to become better. But when you centralize that notion, right, that we need one body or individual or group to then do the planning for the rest of us, the whole process is destroyed. And I don't know, it sounds that it sounds simple, but it's very easy to fall for, I guess, especially when you're disadvantaged or you're low down the economic hierarchy that, oh, I can just cast a vote in this ballot box and this guy is going to give me money or whatever the thing I want, rather than the actual work necessary to close the gap from where you are and where to where you want to be. Um, It just undermines the entire reality of individual responsibility. This is uh, two parting thoughts. So one is from Schumpeter, late in the Austrian School of Economics, whom Sol quotes in this chapter. And, and this is a great description of what we've been calling the ludic fallacy, which is, again, mistaking simulations or games for reality. Again, with great penetrating intellect, Schumpeter says, we fight for and against not men and things as they are, mm-hmm. but for and against the characters that we make of them. Mm-hmm. And this is it, is that, that that is how the political process proceeds, is we make a caricature of a group of people positive or negative, we then attempt to rally people behind that character. That caricature never existed in reality, and it should be no surprise to anyone, especially when you layer complex systems and externalities on top of this, it should be no surprise to anyone that the actions taken against this straw man or this caricature have no meaningful effect in the world, mm-hmm. or often have the opposite effect, let's be clear. And then a, a parting... so. It's interesting. We're in the world of words here, and uh, we perhaps use many words, but I want to I kind of leave the audience with a really simple framework. And Sowell says that most all political propositions for intervention can be defeated by just three questions. And those three questions are, at what cost? So what, what is the cost of this intervention, right? And for, for example, like if we're going to have a mask mandate, we should stop and pause for a second. Or if we're going to say that certain jobs are essential and non-essential, like, how much power are we actually giving governments? Is this power, is this ratchet that we give to the government ever going to come back? So, you know, at what cost, number one? Number two, very simple question. Is there any evidence for this? And then number three, this is extraordinarily important, compared to what? Mm. Because one of the things that we've shown is that when you are dealing with castles in the air, there's no comparison to anything. Mm-hmm. You are simply making a statement that in your shouldest world, uh, in your arbitrary opinion, should be the case. But it's very difficult to compare that to ex- empirically anything. And this is, again, this confusion of ex ante and ex post. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, the, the great 
Thomas Sowell has at least given us three questions that we can ask of any any policy change. At what cost? Compared to what? And uh, sorry, what's my third one? Evidence. Yes. At what cost? Compared to what? And is there any evidence for this? Yes. That is a great place to stop. Um, yeah, man, he, what a beast. That's all. I've heard soul described as a, as a beast. And I think that's probably the best way to describe him as just, he's on Taleb's level as far as, I mean, all right, Taleb, personal, whatever, notwithstanding with, with Taleb, he's still a brilliant writer and he's introduced a lot of kind of novel concepts to the world. And I feel like soul soul's writing is definitely on par with that. Um, okay. I, I put him beyond, I I didn't put him beyond Taleb and that more scholarly, greater scrutiny, uh, you know, entire, like an army and Taleb has a different style. He says, you know, I shouldn't write about anything that I can't do from memory because it's not sincere, but, uh, you know, the number of citations in souls work and soul is, is very difficult to ignore. You can always, you can cast dispersions on Taleb and be like, Oh, he's not this and this academic. I don't subscribe to his theory. It's very difficult to do that with soul because he's so well read on every, every school of economics. So, yeah, yeah uh, really read good, your soul, folks. Read your soul, and uh, thank you, Anish, for introducing me to this fantastic author in this book. Uh, could you please let people know where they could find you on the internet? Yeah, sure. I'm a k a r v e a carve on Twitter, and also a carve.com for some of my recent articles. Awesome. We will do this again. Thank you. Thank you.